L.L. Bean has partnered with the National Park Foundation to help you find your happy place. And with more than 400 national parks, there's a good chance you'll find one close to home. Discover your perfect day in a park at findyourpark.com. Books on the national park system are a favorite of mine to collect, but they often leave me wanting. They're usually written as guidebooks that cram the where to and how to in a minimal amount of real estate. National Geographic is setting out to change that. I'm Jason Epperson, and my guest this week on the America's National Parks podcast is adventurer and award-winning author, John Waterman, American Landscape, including the wilds of Alaska and the conflicts surrounding the Colorado River. His newest book, commissioned by National Geographic, is a bit of a different undertaking. It's called Atlas of the National Parks. And contrary to the name, it's no roadmap. National Geographic calls it the first book of its kind. It's a stunning, glossy showcase of America's spectacular park system, richly illustrated with an inspiring collection of maps, graphics, and photographs. Please welcome to the show, John Waterman. John, thanks for being here. Thanks very much for having me. I'd like to start by talking about your origins in the world of the outdoors. What got you involved in nature and conservation? Well, I have been a lifelong outdoors person. And as a 16-year-old, I attended an an Outward Bound course, and uh, it changed my life. And from there on forth, uh, I dedicated myself to a a life of not only adventure, but time spent surrounded by nature as much as possible. Um, This manifested itself in many ways, um, the, the sorts of career choices and jobs that I held, including, of course, jobs uh, for the National Park Service. You're well known for your explorations and writings on Alaska, especially Denali, the Arctic Wildlife Refuge, and the Inuit people. When did you first make it to Alaska? I first went uh, at uh, 19 years old, and um, that was my also my first visit to a national park, Denali National Park. And along with my Boy Scout troop, we tried to climb the highest mountain, uh, then called McKinley, now renamed Denali. And uh, the experience was uh, life-changing for me also, and uh, continued going back and eventually had a job there working as a rescue ranger uh, there in Denali National Park in Alaska. Denali's obviously played host to some harrowing rescues, so you must have been a serious climber. Were climbing and mountaineering a big part of your early life? Well, it had been. I, I was a fairly avid climber. I did go back, in fact, just three years ago and and had the good fortune to summit yet again on my 60th birthday, uh, On a, in fact, on a volunteer National Park Service patrol. Of course, I had to go to the summit just to make sure no one accidentally dropped any litter. And if they did, I would have cleaned it up. Um, but of course, um, I was also hired at another national park, Rocky Mountain National Park, because I was an avid climber and they needed to round out the ranks of their search and rescue team uh, because there frequently were uh, climbing accidents in Rocky. Um, but I'm also very much cast in the, the naturalist mode. I'm, 
I'm fascinated by ecological processes, by not only the changes in the, the national parks, but I, you know, have gone on trips, for instance, to Great Smokies Mountain National Park, uh, just to during wildflower season, just to look at the flowers, or Everglades to paddle my kayak. So I like to think of myself as a renaissance person when it comes to the national parks. And uh, I try to experience uh, all different facets of the 61 parks. So you spent a lot of time exploring the parks and working for the park service, but you've now been writing about the parks and wildlands for over 40 years. You've written several books and countless articles and journals. What led you to become an author? Well, I had a penchant to be a writer about the time I first went to a national park and eventually started writing a, a story first about climbing. And then I rounded out into stories more about adventure and travel on. So, um, of course, this naturally segued into writing about adventures in national parks because I've spent a, years of my life uh, in not just visiting the front country of these national parks, but in very remote corners of some of the wilder, least visited parks. And your writing eventually caught the eye of National Geographic. Yeah, I've had the good fortune to be doing things for them for years. I first wrote stories for them pre-digital era back in the 80s, in fact, about Denali National Park for their news service. And eventually, uh, more than a dozen years ago, I guess, I started doing bigger and bigger projects for the National Geographic, usually as the recipient of a, a grant where I would have the opportunity to go to a place and spend a couple of months or more there, on a, typically on a long journey, developing a, a sense of place in order that I could write about it and create other media. For instance, 10 years ago, I wanted to learn more about water here in the Southwest where I live. So I, I put my boat in at the headwaters of the Colorado River in Rocky Mountain National Park and spent the next five months paddling uh, all the way to Mexico uh, along the length of the, of the river through many national parks along the way, too. And uh, these are the sorts of things that I've had the good fortune and, I guess, willpower to, to pull off with the National Geographic. And I hope to continue doing well, your new book, Atlas of the National Parks, is something a bit different for you. In the foreword, Gary Nell, the chairman of the National Geographic Partners, writes a heartwarming bit about growing up as a city kid and emerging from his pup tent in Zion National Park to see the ocean of stars. But then he goes on to talk about the partnership between national parks and the National Geographic. He says, the connections between these two legendary organizations indeed goes back more than a century. In 1912, four years before a National Park Service even existed, National Geographic magazine introduced its readers to the 11 parks then under federal protection. And then he says four years later, an entire issue of the magazine was dedicated to the land of the best, a tribute to the scenic grandeur and unsurpassed natural resources of our own country, addressing a readership more likely to embark on a grand tour of Europe than travel to the American West. Editor Gilbert H. Grosvenor used words and photos to lure them home. Any of our readers could spend an entire lifetime seeing nature's masterpieces within our boundaries and not reach the end of the catalog, he wrote. At the time, Franklin K. Lane, Secretary of the Interior, sat on the board of managers of the National Geographic Society. 
every member of Congress received a copy of that issue of National Geographic. Grosvenor helped to draft the legislation that was soon signed into law by Woodrow Wilson, establishing the National Park Service. That's just a massive legacy. And I'm wondering what it feels like, what the pressure of putting something called Atlas of the National Parks for an organization like National Geographic feels like. Yeah, um, first, uh, before the pressure aspect, I will say that it is an amazing legacy. Uh, and in fact, uh, the National Geographic, uh, back in its early days until this day, nearly a, a century later, has been hugely influential in the creation of national parks. For instance, in one of my favorite parks, Denali, uh, they created a special issue dedicated just to the potential creation of that park and sent a copy to each member of Congress. Uh, so, of course, Congress had no choice but to vote in this national park. And they did this repeatedly. So uh, the National Geographic has been behind and supportive of, if not all, many of these national parks. So I, I feel privileged to be a part of this great legacy. And was there any pressure? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> to pull this thing off. I didn't have a whole lot of time to write it. We didn't have the budget for me to go visit all 61 national parks, but they chose me because they knew that I was a former park ranger and I had already uh, had a lot of experience in parks. So it was, uh, I have to concede, a massive brain drain, <laughs> uh, a massive research project. And I was the sole writer of the book but I work closely with a team of uh, photo editors, editors, and uh, cartographers through which the book would not have been possible. And we had all the resources of, of the National Geographic Society at, at, to bear with. And not only the maps that had been created by the National Geographic Society over the last century, but um, because of this close collaboration with the national parks throughout the years, uh, we met with uh, the National Park Service and were able to use many of the, the more stellar maps created through the Department of the Interior that, that showcased these parks. And so some of these chapters, I happen to have the book open to the, the right now to the quintessential national park of them all, the, uh, Yellowstone. In that chapter, there happened to be six different maps in there, not only the, the openings, sort of Park Service-style maps, but maps that show things such as forest fire activity in the park over the years or those areas uh, in which you can find different uh, types of animal species and so on. So I uh, can open this book today and still find things that I haven't completely absorbed, even though I wrote most of the text. <laughs> well, let's talk about the actual structure of the book then, because... I think that's one of the special things about it. There have been hundreds of books written about the parks, but this is not a tourism guide. This is for research, for exploring. It's an encyclopedia. It's lots of stuff. But what I love is that it's not written with a template. You haven't taken each park and written X number of words and slapped a map next to it. You've keenly realized that each park is different and needs to have its story told in a different way. So I'm looking here at a three-dimensional representation of the Southwest Canyons, Grand Canyon, Zion, Bryce, where you've got a breakdown of the geology from the plateau to the cliffs to the canyons themselves. And then in the parks with caves, you've got 3D representations of the actual cave structure. 
how did you figure out the method you were going to use to approach each park? Well, first off, I really appreciate that you noticed all that um, because it's a big book. It's hard to get your arms around it all. Yeah. Um, and, but I went back to uh, the original sort of thinking behind what would make a national park. I went back to some of the early letters and through these things that Park Service was looking for to create, to, to sort of uh, scope out suitable lands and seascapes that would make national parks, I found a, a list of criteria. And so rather than accept any kind of template, I took that criteria and then I plugged every one of the national parks into that criteria. That criteria included such things as, in the words of the park founders, you know, beautiful natural architecture. So, of course, that's, that's an inn for the Grand Canyon or scenery or the uh, abundance of wildlife or uh, unique natural features. You know, there you have Yellowstone with its geysers or uh, Denali National Park with its wildlife and the highest mountain in the continent. So I plugged that criteria in and that allowed me to determine which parks got what kind of treatment. You know, for instance, one of the opening chapters in the book is that of uh, Acadia National Park in Maine. And one of the reasons that park was created was for its superlative uh, examples of geology, literally geology as in the creation of the earth, because you can see rocks there that are remnants from uh, what was once the, the supercontinent of Laurentia. So I, I didn't stop at scenery or wildlife or geology. And of course, there are parks that, that were all about uh, tectonics or volcanism. Uh, and of course, many of these parks are, are known for their wildlife. Or then there are places like Great Smoky National Park, which is a superlative example of a, one of the richest biospheres in the world, uh, simply for its, its astounding numbers of, of, of plants. The, the flora is, is just staggering, particularly if you happen to go there in the spring, when, the, as I mentioned before, when the flowers are, are blooming. The Smokies are a great example of the human history of some of the parks, and that's in here where it's needed. But the whole approach works so well. The text is written beautifully. And as a reader, you dive in because it's not chunks of the same stuff on every park. You want to keep going because it doesn't feel like these miniature snippets. I love that you've even got diagrams of famous trees. There's all sorts of unexpected information in here. It almost feels like reading the surprises around every corner in an almanac. And I just love it for that. Well, well, thank you. You know, my mission was was not only to educate, but it was to entertain and inspire, uh, and and to get people excited about not only these natural wonders, but just you know to reconnect with the childlike joys that we can have in a place like a national park that's been set aside for the eternities, uh, and and that's the, what's lovely about national parks. There's nothing like them. Our national parks have been emulated around the world. And furthermore, it's a great example of the, the, one of the best applications of a democratic process. You know, these parks are for the people. Um, many of them, not all of them, but they're smoky, for instance, is the park you can still go to without paying the park admission to get in. 
And therein can be a bit of conundrum because we love these national parks. More than 330 million people, more than the entire U.S. population, have been visiting these parks every year. So in, in there is the conundrum that, that some of them are being loved to death. And this is the, the new challenge for the park services to figure out how to not only leave these parks open for the people as democratic institution they are, but how do we continue to preserve these vital aspects of the parks? So now that you've completed this massive project, what's next for John Waterman? Well, of course, the, the National Geographic Atlas uh, to the National Monument. Got to move on from 61 to over 400. Well, it would be well worth it, and I look forward to you making it happen. The National Geographic Atlas to the National Parks comes out November 19th. It's fantastic. It's a large, glossy, hardcover gift for the holiday season. And you can pre-order it now at bookstores, on Amazon, or at nationalgeographic.com. And you can find John Waterman's other books at jonathanwaterman.com. John, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. And find the show notes for today's episode, including links to purchase the book at nationalparkpodcast.com. For more great American destinations, give us a listen at our new See America podcast, wherever you listen to this one. And if you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys at OurWanderingFamily.com. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag Be An Outsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.